0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. There's any number of stories that we could, and characters that we could turn to for developing the theme that we've been covering since last night about how God uses the lives of ordinary sinners to accomplish His will. In fact, you could basically take any story in the Old Testament and and you could trace how, in various ways, God is using both men as well as women to do this. We've talked about Cain and Abel. We've talked about uh, about, uh, Jacob and Esau a little bit. But the one that I constantly return to over and over is David. And there's a number of reasons for this. One is that, of course, David's one of the most well-known characters in the Old Testament, one of the most beloved characters in the Old Testament. And he is, if for no other reason, it's because he is the author of the hymn book of the Old Testament. Uh, the words that have been on the lips of both Israel and the church for millennia. All the Psalms. David authored at least about half of the Psalms. So his words continue to be, um, miraculously, his, his words continue to echo in, in churches as well as synagogues to this day. So that alone, if even if we didn't have anything else about David, that would be just a tremendous significance for the ongoing life of God's people. But we have so much about his life. In fact, uh, in in our podcast forty minutes in the Old Testament, as as Dan and I were working our way through the story of David, we we decided that really first and second Samuel are, are wrongly named. They should really be named first and second David, because Samuel is a main character at the beginning, but then he just kind of begins to drop from the narrative and eventually of course he dies before you even get to the end of first samuel so the books are all about david david is introduced very soon in first samuel and then he continues all the way through the end of second samuel so these books are really about him about beginning with when he's chosen to be king secretly anointed by samuel in bethlehem and then of course he's taken into saul's home he's a is a, a harpist he he his playing and his singing soothes Saul's troubled soul, and then of course you have the most famous scene connected with David when he slays the Philistine giant Goliath. That immediately skyrockets him to the top of Saul's army. He becomes a leader of Saul's army pretty soon by the, by the uh, the acquisition of a whole bunch of foreskins from Philistines who did not surrender those willingly. By the way, he uh, he is able to 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 pay the the most the craziest bride price <laughs> ever imaginable, and that is through these foreskins. So he, he becomes, by his marriage to McCall, he becomes also the son-in-law to, 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 to Saul, to, to the king. So he, when you first meet David, you're introduced to just a fascinating figure who, uh, who is you know, obviously very intelligent, very capable, a skilled warrior, a skilled musician, so, as Dan and I worked our way through his life we we quickly decided David's one of those people you can 't help but like. if you were around him, you would just admire you would you would like david and he 's introduced to us in that that phrase that 's famously connected with him that he was a man after god's own heart, and God chose him even though he wasn't the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or even seventh son, but the eighth son and the youngest son of Jesse. He's the one that God chose. By the way, you see, again, that reversal, right? It's a reversal that we see throughout the scriptures, beginning with Cain and Abel, and then Jacob and Esau, and now all the way to the eight, eight, eight sons of Jesse. It is not the first all the way through the seventh, but it is the youngest, the last one who is chosen. So again, God kind of flipping things over. So you see God using David in just amazing ways. He uses him to defeat the Philistines, both during the reign of Saul. And then when David himself becomes king, the Philistines, who have long been a threat to Israel, really cease being a threat. David is able basically to to take them out as the preeminent threat to Israel. So his list of accomplishments just goes on and on and on. He's secretly anointed as king, as I said. Eventually, he's proclaimed king by the tribe of Judah, his own tribe. After a few years, where this comes, some skirmishes between north and south. Eventually, the the northern tribes also are on board with David being king. So he is the first king of a true united United Israel. Along the way, he's amassing followers. He's acquiring a few wives, and eventually he captures Jerusalem when he becomes king and makes that the capital city. So on and on and on. You're you're reading about David. You're like, man, can this guy? Not fail. (laughs) It's it's kind of a the way I read it. It's it's almost it's almost like the scriptures are sort of uh, leading us on, kind of setting us up. Because we're this happens often in the scriptures where you're introduced to a character and you're like, man, this guy is so impressive. He does so much. He's so amazing. And it's almost like we're just being lulled into this assumption that everything is going to be great. Like this is the guy. You know, maybe this is, maybe, you don't want to say it too loud, is this the Messiah? I mean, is, is this going to be the guy that is really the answer to the world's prayers? You see this in the case of Noah. You see this in the case of David. You see this in the case of David's son Solomon. You often see this in, in the words in the Old Testament where you kind of maybe led to think, suspect, question whether this might be the guy, and then what happens every time? They fall every time adam falls and then noah falls they all have their own genesis 3 moment solomon certainly does solomon is kind of this adam figure he he studies plants he studies animals people from all over the world come to to hear his wisdom he is renowned for his his wisdom his his proverbs his songs and then all of a sudden after having all this set up about just what an ideal character he is, what do you hear? He loved the wives who came from all the foreign nations, and pretty soon he's building shrines for them right across from where the temple was. Those of us who were in Israel, we were, on the, we were right across from there on the, the Mount of Olives. Well, it was on the Mount of Olives where Solomon built all these shrines to the foreign, the foreign gods. See, he who built the temple... In Jerusalem also built these little temples to all of these horrendous pagan gods. So, the fall of Solomon. David has his own fall, and it's that fall that I, that I want to look at. Because it's, it's instructive with regard to David himself, but it's instructive also when we draw some of the theological themes for, for us as well. And of course, talking about the episode with Bathsheba and Uriah, And this then became the reason that we have one of the most beautiful prayers and hymns that's ever been written, Psalm 51, which was composed by David after all of these these events. So let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. The very first, so 2 Samuel 11, the very first verse is instructive for us. It happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out, that is, go out to battle or go out to war, that David sent Joab, Joab is his, basically his right man, right-hand man. I call Joab David's fixer. He's always fixing David's situations. So he sends Joab and his servants with him and all Israel... And they destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David yashav in Hebrew, which is usually translated stayed. You can translate that as sit. David sat in Jerusalem. Now, right away, there ought to be something that seems a little bit odd to you. Seems, something seems off. And what is that? he's a king yeah and and not just as a king what is he known for what what made David famous he yeah he, he's he's the warrior right he's the fighter he's the one who I mean if going to war is anybody's thing it's David's but he doesn't so he David is sort of at this point where he has a what one author called how did he phrase it something like a dangerous amount of leisure time the, the kind of yeah, bored. That, that phrase captured me, a dangerous amount of leisure time. This, danger, this leisure time was dangerous because it opened... First of all, it was, it was David not fulfilling one of his vocations as, as king to protect Israel. At the same time, it opened up other, what we might call anti-vocations, <laughs> bad callings, we might say, other opportunities for David. And I alluded to this earlier. I do think there is something to be said for a, a danger that creeps into our lives at a certain age. Especially, I don't know if, for women. I can't speak speak to their lives, but for men, I've known this happen. I've seen this happen so many times in my life and in other people's lives too. You get to a certain point where you're, you're kind of you've reached your your goal, whatever that is. And typically, it's career, a career goal, and maybe. What's that? Do you ever reach? Well, some of some do. Yeah, I mean, so if you kind of, you kind of get to where you want to be. Uh, for me, is in my mid thirties. I mean, I, I still had things I wanted to accomplish, but I was, I was then positioned in a way that I could do that. I was no longer, as it were, climbing up, but I had reached where I wanted to be, and now it was a matter of just getting this and this and this, these other smaller goals. But my major goal had been accomplished, and as a result of that. Uh, I, I let my guard down, and I think that's exactly what is happening here with David, too. I had a dangerous amount of leisure, leisure time, if, if you will. And when that happens, all sorts of other kind of thoughts and opportunities begin to introduce themselves. I do think that's why a lot of guys who are in their, are in their 30s go through a, a period of, of real struggle, because if they've kind of reached that point where they're sort of where they, they need to be, the next question is, okay, what now? And very often it's easy to get, for for many things to happen. One is to kind of get bored because you've been striving, fighting, working really hard to get to where you want to be. And now you don't have to do that as much. And then secondly, you can begin to think of everything that you've done accomplished, not as God's gracious gift to you, but as sort of your entitlement. Again, it's the whole ego look what I've done, look what I've accomplished. I worked so hard, and now look at me, look what I've done. And so we forget that these are, yes, you worked, but remember, this was all a gift. (laughs) The very reason you were able to work is because He gave you life, He gave you your mind, He gave you everything necessary to work to get to where you are. But once we've gotten there, it can can easily morph from thinking of this as a gift to an entitlement. And any time we begin to slip into that is when danger is very, very close at hand. That's what happened with with David. He's 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 king, he's got wives, he's got servants, he's got his army, he's got his palace, he's got everything that he needs. So he's there at home in Jerusalem at his palace, and what does he do? Verse two When evening came, (laughs) sometimes you get us kind of pause and soak this in. When evening came, David arose from his bed. What are you supposed to do when evening comes? You're supposed to go to bed. It's like David has been napping. Uh, it's kind of a boring day. I got to take a nap. And evening rolls around, you know, a little bit of light out there still. I'm going to get up from my couch and shut Netflix off for a while. Shut the game off, whatever. I'm going to kind of walk around. So he gets up from his bed. He walks around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. As soon as you... You don't need to even read the next, next part of the story. You? you know exactly where this is going, right? Anytime this is introduced, just in, in these, these two verses, you know exactly where this is going. Now, there's, there's some twists and turns in the story, but you basically know what's going to happen. So David sent and inquired about the woman. Now, pause there for a second. Immediately... Other people are involved in this. I think this is something that is often missed. This is not about David and Bathsheba alone. This is not about David and Bathsheba and Uriah alone. This is not about David and Bathsheba and Uriah and the baby that is in Bathsheba's womb. This is about many more people. Why? Because sin never impacts just you or you and one other person. You'll see as you read through this story, there's a ripple effect. More and more people are involved in this. David sends somebody or somebodies to find out. And now they know. I mean, what did he say? Hey, I saw this chick uh, when I was was in the palace. And let me tell you. So find out who she is for me. I mean, how are you going to explain this in any way that's not suggestive of your desires, right? I just happened to see a woman who was naked. I was just curious as to who she was. So he sends and they... And uh, they, they find out, they said, and one of them said, one said, some are probably more than one, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of one of your best friends, Uriah the Hittite? So Uriah the Hittite is known as one of David's mighty men, meaning that he was probably with David when he was an outlaw all those years in the, in the fleeing from Saul in the wilderness. David had about 400 guys who walked around with him, traveled with him, no doubt raided with him at times. And Uriah was probably one of those guys. He's a Hittite, meaning he's not an Israelite, but he's kind of been brought into the Israelite family. David would have known Uriah well. For some reason, he'd never met Mrs. Uriah. He'd never met Bathsheba. Or maybe he didn't recognize her because he wasn't looking at her face. Whatever the reason was, he didn't know who she was. So as soon as that had been said to David, what ought what conclusion ought he have to have drawn? Okay, okay, Never. sorry. To ask, you know, she's the wife. She's not just the wife of someone, but the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of my closest guys. A guy that you know, we're battle buddies. We've gone to war together. We've been together. So he, verse four. No, this is. David is one of those guys who never does anything halfway. If he's going to take on anybody, he's going to take on a giant. (laughs) If he's going to do something evil, he's not going to stop halfway. He's going to all the way. So there seems to be no hesitation. Verse 4, he sent messengers. Notice either the same people or more are involved here and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said two words in Hebrew. It's three words in English. I am pregnant. So there's so much here that we could, that we could deal with. The, the one thing I want to point out, one of the reasons it mentions that she was bathing is to, is to emphasize the fact that she probably had just finished her menstrual cycle. And so this was a ritual bath. She was probably in a a mikvah, which was a kind of a a bath that the Jewish woman would use to to cleanse themselves. Why is that detail added? Because the narrator wants to make sure we know that she wasn't pregnant before this happened. She had just finished her menstrual cycle. And so when she comes to David, she does not have Uriah's child within her. So the paternity is assured by that little detail that's added. Now, verse 5, you're David. What options do you have at this point? Would Bathsheba send you this message? I am pregnant. Well, first, tell me the best option. What's, what's, the, the, most, what's the best thing that David could have done at this point? The best thing or what he did? Not, not what he did, but the best thing. What, what, what would have been, of all the options, what's the best option for David at this point? Confess. Confess. I mean, that's that is the best thing I know of. One situation, one guy, who uh, in a not exactly the situation, a similar situation, did that. Every situation other than that that I know of did not. What instead other options are chosen? What are those other options? Covered up. Covered up somehow, yeah. Covered. I mean, you're the king. You can surely come up with something to cover this up. Some scenario, right? What are the other options? You could, you could you could get rid of her, yeah. Certain possibility. You could you could I suppose wait around and see if uh, you know a lot of pregnancies don't make it full term. Maybe she miscarries. You just bide your time. There's a lot of different things, in other words, that you could do. There's a lot of things that could happen when we're confronted with our sin, right? And most of the time we we excuse it, uh, we blame other people, we blame situations, we lie, which is. You know, when, when I was in a similar situation uh, many, many years ago, my my default was to lie, just basically lie, 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 until so you kind of it's like the uh, I can't think of the name of the movie that Denzel Washington movie where he's the pilot. What is it? Flight. Flight yeah. You remember at the end when he's finally coming clean and he testifies before uh, the the committee and he he basically says I think it's at that point. Where he says, it's like I had lied, 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 lied Until it's like I finally just ran out of lies <laughs> I finally had to tell the truth He finally confessed I was, It was like that with me You know, eventually you come to the point where you've just, It's like you've almost depleted your, your uh, seemingly bottomless resource of lies And you finally tell the truth Which is, of course, what you should have done all along <laughs> But we tend to, to lie, lie, lie And the more that we lie, of course, just the worse we make our situation Which is exactly what we see playing out here with David He may not lie outright, but he's acting with deceit and deception throughout this whole thing. I am pregnant. So verse 6 begins David's David's choice of what to do. He sends to Joab and says, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sends Uriah to David. Uriah comes to him, verse 7. David asks about the welfare of Joab, the people and the state of the war. David says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet, which was evidently an idiom for take your wife to bed. I mean, at the bare minimum, that's going to entail what that means. Wash your feet. In other words, go to your house, kick off your shoes, wash your feet, do your thing. Uriah went out from the king's house and a present from the king was sent out after him. You know, he sent him a six pack or a bottle of nice Jerusalem wine or something, whatever it was. Y'all have fun. Verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now, what is the most remarkable about that? His loyalty to his men. Yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking, just kind of think spatially. Where does David see Bathsheba? From the rooftop. So what does that mean? They, their house is super close to the, to the palace is, is what that means If you can see a naked woman bathing From the roof of your palace Then they don't live very far away I mean you, you're not going to see a naked woman Two blocks away You're going to see her super close Which means that when Uriah Slept on the porch of the king's house He was basically within a stone's throw of His own home He was that close But he doesn't go home to Bathsheba, and he will give his reason in in just a minute. One of the things to remember about this whole scenario is that David assumes that Uriah is just like him. David assumes Uriah is an opportunist, and here's his opportunity to do what most of us, of course, would would want to do. I mean, if you've been to battle and you've been away from your wife, the first thing you want to do is run home. And it's not to get a hot meal. You You want to go home because you miss your wife and you want to have sex. Uriah does not do that. He stays on the king's porch. Verse 10, they tell David Uriah didn't go down to his house. Again, they, the servants are in on this. They know. The reason they tell David that is because evidently David had told them, hey, we're going to get Uriah home. People know about this. And, of course, people talked then the way they still talk now. Word is, word is getting out. They tell David didn't Uriah didn't do what you wanted him to do. So David says, why didn't you? Now, verse 11, Uriah said to David, and this, this is interesting, these are the only recorded words of Uriah, and they are packed with power. In fact, these words make me wonder if Uriah did not suspect something had happened, because these words, even whether intended or not, are a dagger in the heart of David. He says, the ark of Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, in in tabernacles, in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. So that's the situation of my men, and even the ark. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and by the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. So if there is... There are very few individuals in Scripture, I can think of about three, where the little we know about them is all exemplary. Most of them we know kind of the down and dirty of of the bad parts of their life. Uriah is one of these guys where there's not much bad you can say about him based on what we based on what's recorded. He's faithful, he's devoted. He is he's he's meant to be the counterpoint to David. So if David did all of this, and he should not have then Uriah does not do all of that, and he does what he, what he should have. And he's, a and he's a Gentile. Yeah, which is also another interesting theme. That's a rabbit hole I could go way down. But do keep in mind when you're reading through the Old Testament, very often it's the Gentiles who prove to be much more faithful than the Israelites. And we see that even in the Gospels, right? I have not found such faith in Israel, Jesus says, as I found in this Roman centurion. So there is that unexpected twist where the heart of the Jericho proves to be a, great, a greater theologian than the Israelite spies, as it were. And, of course, Ruth uh, from Moab is brought in. A lot of examples, in other words, and Uriah is one of these examples. So David says to Uriah, thinking to himself, God, what does this guy have to be so faithful? Why can't, why can't he be uh, doing what I want him to do? He says, "We'll stay here today, and tomorrow I'll let you go. So Uriah stays verse 13 David calls him again he eats and drinks before him and made him drunk so now David thinks he's he's finally succeeded because we all know that uh, that liquor you know that uh, that lessens the the inhibitions that someone might might have so it gets him drunk and you can just imagine him sitting around they're slamming back some beers they're talking about oh you remember that time we took on those philistines down in Gath and blah 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 you know they're just they're they're war buddies they're just they're sharing old stories and David's really trying to get him to gravitate toward his house, but in the evening he goes out, and he stayed the same place. He stayed with his Lord's servants, did not go down to his house. This is another part of this story where David has options. David is once more confronted with the the, the possibility of confession and repentance. But instead, like a lot of sinners do, once he's dug a hole that's down to his waist, he decides, you know what? Let's dig it deeper. Let's see how deep we can dig this hole so that I'm all the way in. And verse 14 is him digging a hole where he's all the way in. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and the most chilling line in this whole story is the next one that comes, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So here's a note. Take it back to Joab. Uriah had no idea that he was holding his death sentence in his hand. And here's what he'd written in the letter. Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. Those instructions by David are also proof that sinners are often terribly stupid in their sins. This is is not going to work. First of all, if, if this happens, then Joab... Is going to have to tell the fellow soldiers of Uriah, "Hey, we need to make sure Uriah dies." You really think they're going to go for that? Really think this this is going to this whole scenario is going to work? Joab reads this note and he's like, "This is stupid. This is never going to work." So when you read what actually happens, that is not what that is not what Joab did. Uriah is killed along with a lot of others, but it's not because they set up a scenario like David commanded Joab to set up. The men in the city go out. or Joab kept watch on the city, put Uriah at a place where he knew there were valiant men, fighters, good warriors. The men of the city go out. They fought against Joab. Some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Notice how this ripple effect just keeps getting worse. If with Jesus, one man dies for the people, then in this case, David makes sure that a lot of people die for the one man being him. He's willing to sacrifice a lot of people for himself. Yes, sir? I, I think it's interesting. And I says, but uh, you're at a place where you get the strongest defenders. So that really gives us a little more emphasis on the fact that you have know, probably something like they have been trying to even say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These were the, it's probably in Hebrew, the give or aim, uh, which often translated as like valiant, Strong warriors, the the capable soldiers. Yeah. So he's surrounding him by people that are his... I mean, they're his brothers. So he puts him in a situation where he actually has a chance of of making it. But the men of the city, they go out, they fight against Joab. Some among David's servants die. Uriah also dies. So David is going to send a messenger. Joab is going to send a messenger back to David, basically telling him what happened. And when he does... We could get into the details. We won't take our time to do that. But when he does, he says, hey, when you're relaying the message to David about what happened in the battle, if he seems upset to you, then say, oh, by the way, Uriah also was killed. Now the messenger has to be saying to himself, well, I don't. How how is that going to help? <laughs> how, is it, how is it going to calm David down by telling him that one of his best soldiers was also killed? So maybe even the messenger is confused. But Joab, of course, he knows what he's doing. The messenger gets back with David. He tells him what happened. And he doesn't even wait to see if David's going to be upset. He adds at the very end, this is verse 24, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Now listen to David's words in verse 25. Here's what I want you to tell Joab. Do not let this thing well, my, new, my translation has displeased you. What do, what do yours have? Upset. Trouble. Troubled, upset. The that's, the, that's the literal translation. Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Now, the reason that's important to translate that literally, go to the very closing phrase of chapter, tw- uh, chapter 11. But the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So David says, oh, don't let this thing be evil in, the, in your eyes. And then you get the Lord's uh, proclamation about this at the very end. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now back to verse 25. For the sword devours one as well as the other. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. And so David basically says, you know, people die in war. It happens. Just go out and fight a little bit harder this, this next time. Now, to summarize these next couple of verses and then to look at what God does with this, last couple of verses say, Uriah, Bathsheba hears that Uriah has been killed. She mourns for him. When the mourning time is over, David brings her into his house. She becomes his wife, and she bore him a son. So how does David, through this whole scenario, what's his public image as a result of everything that's happened? Is it diminished or enhanced? Not if you don't know what's happened. If you don't know what's happened behind the scenes, what do you see happening in David bringing Bathsheba in? Hmm? He's trying to be a better man. I'm just, I'm just taking care of a war widow. That's all I'm doing. Uh, he's triumphant. He wins. He gets, uh, he gets a beautiful woman. And he gets a public image of being the one who takes care of his people because he takes a war way to win to his own family. He's gonna he's gonna make sure that she's okay. Because Uriah was really important to him. So you see how there's this there's the there's the uh, the public image of what's going on, and then there's the ugly reality behind the behind the scenes. It is interesting, you you have to wait to the very closing sentence of the chapter to hear any kind of direct divine rebuke, isn't it? Sometimes stories will be told in the scriptures where there is no divine rebuke. I mean, you, you, you kind of read it between the lines, but here you have to wait to the very end. So all this goes down and then God says, is not good. This is evil. So what does he do? In chapter 12, he sends Nathan to David. Why does he send a prophet, a preacher to David? Yeah, why, why does why does God send preachers to us? Because we need we need the external word. Now I have a voice in my conscience, but I have I have fifty one years of highly skilled artistry in muting and dampening that voice in my conscience. But here is what I can't do: if, if Tommy come, if Tommy's my Nathan and he comes to me. I can't control his voice. So he can come to me and say, Here's what you've done, and it's not right. You've sinned. That's exactly why God still gives us preachers to call us to repentance. Because we have a way of sewing shut the lips of our conscience. We can kind of quiet it, but we can't that of a preacher. So if a preacher ever makes you feel uncomfortable because of your sin, thank God for it. It's one of the reasons he's there. <laughs> so that's of course not the only reason as we see he he tells a parable to to David a parable that you're probably familiar with about the rich man and the poor man and the, and the and the ewe lamb and David's reaction at the end of it is to be angry because he thinks this isn't a parable he thinks it's the real scenario so the man who arranged the murder of one of his closest friends took this man's wife he had sex with her beforehand all of this what is he finally angry about when does david truly show his anger it's over what happened to a to an animal. I mean, it's, it's, it's 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 a it's a strange reversal of human compassion in this in this case. Nathan, verse seven. Nathan says to David, "Atah ha'ish, you are the man." And then he has this proclamation about what God is going to do. He anoints you king over Israel. He delivered you. He gave you all of these things, and you have despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight. So Nathan is preaching a very stern, clear law message to David. And and again, David is now in a scenario where he has to go one of two ways. He can once more lie, deceive, blame others, do something, or he can do what? He can confess. And finally, after all of this has happened, David confesses. He says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Now you can't have a better confession than that. I love that he stops. I, he doesn't say I've sinned against the Lord because, or I've sinned against the Lord and it just, that's it. I've sinned against the Lord period. And Nathan's response is the absolution. The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. David is finally brought to the point where he speaks the truth. And the man that God sends to call him to repentance also speaks the truth to him. He says, you're forgiven. The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die verse 14 is very troublesome though because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child that is born to you shall surely die now that doesn't seem fair and it doesn't seem fair because it's not why should the son of David die in his place yeah why should a child that has not committed this sin die for the sin of someone else? That seems scandalous to you? <laughs> That's exactly what the gospel is. So if, if it bothers you that this baby dies, well, just look at that in light of the bigger message of the scriptures. That's exactly, The son of David comes to die in our place. He who in himself is completely innocent, he's the one who dies for the sake of all of our sins, all of our adulteries and murders and idolatries and everything else. So when you view what's happening here in First Sam- in Second Samuel in light of the entire message of the Scriptures, you're like, "Oh, I see. this This is scandalous. This seems unjust. This seems unfair. This really bothers me." Well. That's because the gospel itself bothers us, because on the surface it doesn't seem right. That's why it's so scandalous. That's why it's so bothersome, because everything in our lives says that if you, if person A does something wrong, then person A needs to pay for it, right? If, I, if my son does something wrong, then I'm not sent to prison for it. He is, right? That's, what, that's the way this works. We would call it unjust if it was any other way. But God comes along. He says, "Well, we're going to we're going to kind of mess that up, because what we're going to do is we're going to take all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the death and all of the sin, and we're going to put it on this one, so that he who knew no sin becomes sin for us, so that a blessed exchange might happen, so that his righteousness and his holiness becomes ours." And this story is a, is a, is a perfect example of how God worked then as a preview of what he will ultimately do in his son. And the after effects of all of this is we are given the gift of Psalm 51, which David wrote after all of this happened with Uriah and Bathsheba. And that becomes the preeminent confession of the sinner in which we rejoice In telling the truth about ourselves, and more than that, we rejoice in God telling us a greater truth, that His grace and His mercy cover us. I'm thankful that this happened to David, not because of all the terrible consequences. There's plenty of fallout from this, but I'm thankful this happened to David because it's a reminder to each of us that our sin is never greater than the Lord's mercy. We often think, oh, I've I've done so many things that are wrong, or I've done this one thing that is so wrong that there's no way that God will, you know, in the end really be able to overlook that or forgive that. Untrue. The truth of God's mercy is always greater than the truth of our sin. And David is a is a perfect example of that, as is Jacob, as is Cain, as is Jonah, as we'll see later, as is all these sinners in the Scriptures. Over and over they remind us that God calls us to a life of, of faithfulness and truthfulness and righteousness, and we should strive for that and pray for that. And when we fall, repent and trust that the Lord is going to speak to us a word of absolution in which He takes away our sins, because ultimately that is who He is. He's a God of mercy. He's a God, God of grace. Now we're at 11:15 ish, uh, so I'm going to pause right there just for a minute. Because I want to give us some time for Jonah, but see if there's any reaction you might have about uh, the David story. There's some, we could spend a whole retreat just on on David. So there's much more that we didn't just have a chance to look at. But jump in if you have anything you want to say. Well, it's, it's typology. In saw the fruit was pleasing to her she took yeah uh, the church fathers talk about the stages of temptation that are real fitting with this particular story suggestion delight and assent yes saying yes so the eve temptation the david temptation you see the three stages there, there there's the suggestion and we all know how this works right doesn't mean that we've actually given in. It's just the suggestion. And then the more we think about it, the more we meditate upon it, there's the delight in thinking about it. It's, it's still kind of on the inside. It's on, in our mind and heart. And then finally, there's the assent. There's the yes. With David, the suggestion was when he saw the woman. And the delight was in looking at her and thinking about her and considering what he might, be, might do. And the, finally, the ascent is when he sends messengers and brings her to be with him.